You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law Corporation, and this week on the Driving Law Podcast, we welcome back Camille Labchuk from Animal Justice. She is going to talk to us about some changes in driving law affecting animals and the transportation of animals in Canada. Unfortunately, not what she'd been hoping for. She's also going to talk to us about a few other changes in animal law that she's been working on and uh, where things are going to go from here. Um, so everybody, give a warm welcome to Camille Lapchuk. So welcome back to the podcast this week, Camille Labchuk from Animal Justice. She is here to talk about some developments that have happened in uh, animal transportation regulations. And she had joined us before to talk about them and since then has been involved in trying to change them. How successful has that been? The government had actually put forward a draft of, of new regulations a couple of years ago, and we were all pretty disappointed by those new regs because they didn't really accomplish much for animals. And uh, unfortunately, what ended up happening is uh, the situation has become even worse because they've now released the final version of those regulations, and it's, it's pretty uh, bare bones and pretty ineffective. So just to get at the major issues, when we talk about animal transport, we're talking about trucking uh, over 800 million animals per year to their death in slaughterhouse. And that's something that happens every day in Canada. Animals are transported every single day of the year in this country, regardless of weather and regardless of uh, conditions that might be going on outside. And a couple of the problems are, are this. So first of all, animals can be transported for a very, very, very long time, um, up to 72 hours under the new regulations, and, and not much has changed. There have been a couple of reductions in maximum allowable transport time without food, water, or rest for animals, uh, but not much has changed there. And the other really disappointing thing is that there were no weather restrictions put into place. So on the coldest days of the year, minus 30 plus a brutal wind chill, you can still transport animals in open-sided vehicles. And on the hottest, most sweltering days of the year with a humidex in the 30s, you can still transport animals without any temperature control. So it was pretty disappointing. Wow. And you you testified as an expert witness before the House of Commons, um, was it the Justice Committee recently on, or... Some committee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. It was the Justice Committee. I was I was there to testify about a, a cruelty bill, actually. It was Bill C-84, and it, it's a bill that would outlaw all forms of bestiality, as well as uh, close some loopholes related to animal fighting. And uh, it, it was a good appearance. Uh, it's hard for anyone to oppose <laughs> fixing laws related to bestiality and animal fighting. It would be hard to find anyone who's opposed to that. So uh, the committee accepted a couple of amendments that I proposed, and it was overall a good thing. But unfortunately, they didn't delve into any transport issues. Do you think, though, that it's sort of inconsistent for government on the one hand to say, you know, we care about animal cruelty and we want to fix this weird loophole in our bestiality laws that only a 
finds that penetration is a is a criminal offense. Um, we want to fix that and we want to protect animals on this hand. But when it comes to animals as means of profit, we're perfectly comfortable treating them in cruel and, and unacceptable ways. It's absolutely hypocritical. I mean, the the number of animals affected by, say, the bestiality and animal fighting bill is fortunately small. Um, bestiality is, is one of those offenses that we don't really know the extent of it because it happens behind closed doors. And animal fighting is difficult to detect as well. But we're talking about in the hundreds or thousands of animals, whereas when we look at animal transport, animals used in industrial agriculture, I mean, Canada killed over 800 million animals for food. Uh, last year alone, and that doesn't even count fishes. That's just just land animals. Wow. Um, so, you know, we're looking at a huge area. Most of the suffering that happens when it comes to animals happens in the industrial farming system, and that's a system that's completely unregulated. So on-farm conditions for how animals should be treated is something that the government doesn't regulate at the federal level. Provincial governments don't step in either. The only laws that we do have that do exist to protect those animals is when they start to be transported and then when they're slaughtered. So from the moment they're born or they hatch until the day that they're trucked to their death, they're completely untouched by any regulations providing for their conditions. So I guess, Kyla, that's one of the reasons I find it so disappointing that when the government actually does step in and regulate and regulate transport, they do such a poor job of it. If you could fix it... Um, what changes would you make? I mean, obviously, other than like getting rid of animals as food altogether, <laughs> assuming that that has to be has to be something that happens. Um, how would you make it? What what would be acceptable to you? Well, I think the way other countries are moving is doing much better than Canada's doing right now. We still, despite these changes, have among the worst transport laws for animals in the Western world. But if you look at countries like the European Union. The transport times are, are much lower. So let's just take cows as an example. In, in Canada, it's, it's now 36 hours you can transport a cow without food, water, or rest. In the European Union, it's only eight hours. So they've reduced that time down substantially. Uh, it's similar. It's eight hours for horses and pigs as well. Um, for, for some birds, it's more like 12 hours, whereas in Canada, it's, tw- it's 24 hours. So we've got almost twice as much time in some cases, or many times more that in other cases, that animals can be transported. So reducing those transport times would be a huge step. The other issue I think that is a problem in our country is we're a country of weather extremes. We have some very, very hot days, and especially where I live in Ottawa, some very, very cold days. And uh, countries and jurisdictions like the European Union have moved towards weather restrictions and climate-controlled vehicles. So instead of these open-sided trucks that many of us see on the highway, They've mandated that vehicles must keep the temperature between uh, 5 degrees Celsius and, um, say, 20 degrees Celsius. I think it might be a little bit higher than that, but there's a range there. And if the temperature drops above or below those levels, the driver gets an alert and they can remedy the situation. So I would have liked to see something like that in Canada. Another uh, really positive development would be banning the use of electric prods. It's still perfectly legal under the new regulations to zap animals with intense electricity to get them to move. And that's obviously inappropriate and just frankly cruel. Yep. Now, 
because they have these regulations in Europe with much shorter times that animals can be transported without food, water and rest and rules about climate control, have you studied or looked into at all how that's affected like the bottom line for farmers or the amount of revenue that people can earn? Is there a huge difference in, in you know, how much money you can make? Because obviously this is clearly for the government an economic issue. Yeah, you're right. It always comes back to, to money. And, and I know that was an argument that farmers used in the European Union to try to stop these new transport regulations from coming into place. Uh, interestingly, in the EU, it's not just transport regulations that are much stronger. They actually have much uh, stronger regulations out long, really cruel things like battery cages for chickens, like very intensive confinement for other farmed animals. And those changes haven't substantially increased the price of animal products. They haven't affected the industry. The industry is is still operational and still thriving, um, unfortunately, in my view. But I think what those regulations have done is uh, is show producers that if they're going to be in this business, they have to find a way to do it profitably if they want to make money in a way that doesn't cause as much animal suffering as just a completely uh, free-for-all. Right. And other industries have had um, limitations placed on on them, like other, you know, professional truck drivers have limitations on how many hours they can drive before they have to take a rest and you have to keep trip logs. And companies have found ways to accommodate and maintain their profitability. Um, I think it, it, it increases innovation when you increase the restrictions in how people do their their jobs. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it, it's it, when you read the Canadian Food Inspection Agency's statement for why they're making these moves to the transport regulations, they actually use the phrase that they're removing obsolete or unnecessary requirements to reduce the burden on the industry. And they state, state that 98% of the shipments happening for animals in this country are already compliant with the new requirements. So essentially, I think that what they did, Kyla, is they looked at what the industry was already doing, and they just tried to harmonize the law to accord with standard industry practices when that's not the way that we think of regulation existing. I don't think that the public expects regulation to exist just to serve the needs of the industry to have some sort of window dressing to point to and say, look, we're doing a good job because we're complying with the law. I think that Canadians expect a lot more out of our government, especially when it comes to vulnerable segments of society like animals who have no voices of their own in the political system. So what are the next steps from here? Are, I'm, I assume that you're not nowhere close to being done fighting this issue. What, what are your next steps for trying to bring some sort of sense and humanity into how animals are transported? Well, the fight is never over. You're right. I think it's important that we don't um, ignore this. Well, what often happens is once government passes a law, everyone kind of stops being active on it because they assume that even if it's not a very good new law, that the issue is sort of dead in the water for the next 5, 10, 15 years because something has happened. I don't think that we can rest in this case. I think that the stakes are too high. We're talking about the lives of 800 million animals. Um, we know that over 2, point, uh, sorry, over 2 million animals arrive dead at slaughterhouses every year, and many millions more arrive in, in such a condition that they are seriously injured or almost dying. So the stakes are too high to rest, and we're encouraging people to contact their members of parliament and let them know that the situation is still not good enough and that the government needs to take ownership of this and bring in regulations that match Canadians' attitudes. Right, and we're heading into an election year, so now would be the time to put pressure on your MP and make it something that that they know you care about. 
Absolutely. And Animal Justice will be endorsing candidates from all political parties who do take these issues seriously and will be encouraging people to vote for those candidates and to volunteer for them, to knock on doors for them for them, and, and help them get elected because we urgently need to shift the political culture in Ottawa and in provinces too. So the politicians have to make sure that they take these issues seriously. Will you be publishing on your website or online somewhere a list of candidates who support better transportation regulations for animals? Absolutely. We'll be, we'll be publishing information on animaljustice.ca and also likely humanevoters.ca, which is our political arm. So I encourage anyone to watch uh, those websites. We'll certainly be doing media interviews on this as well, so the information should get out there. And uh, if anyone listening is compelled to join us and help with this initiative, they're welcome to get in touch as well and see how they can play a role. Wonderful. So it's animaljustice.ca, and um, it's Camille Labchuk, who is the executive director. Is that, am I right? You got it. Yeah, okay. Um, And uh, if you need to reach out to her, she is always uh, very responsive and incredibly knowledgeable in this area. So thank you again, Camille, for taking time out of your day to talk about uh, the changes or real lack of changes to animal transport regulations in Canada. Oh, thank you so much, Kyla, for bringing this information to people. It's, It's always a joy to talk to you. Thank you again, Camille, for your valuable insight on animals and driving law. I now want to welcome back to the podcast my mainstay podcast sometimes co-host. Is that... Yeah, fair enough. Fair, yeah. Paul Doroshenko. How are you, Paul? I'm doing well. How are you? I am fine. I read a story today, um, or at least I read the headline, or I read part of the story. It was I came to me in... uh, an email that comes to lawyers and uh, it was discussing the first case of animal ne- abuse neglect for someone with a fish in a fish bowl. Yes, I saw that. I was going to put it on Weird and Wacky Wednesdays next week. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, it kind of makes sense, but at the same time, it's kind of hard to justify it with a fish. But I don't know, a fine. I mean, I don't think you'd jail somebody for fish abuse. No, I know. And I mean, you you accept the responsibility when you decide to take care of that animal, but it does seem to be sort of qualitatively different when it's a fish as opposed to a mammal. I think, you know, we're we're bombarded in society with images of like, you know, the the child who gets the goldfish that a week later is found floating in the goldfish bowl. What happens all the time, but I mean, it kind of takes you to the next level of like, okay, what happens if it's your your tarantula? If you've got an uh, insect um, and you neglect your insect, okay, well now now we're moving on to the next thing is the house fly and the mosquito. Uh, so yeah. um, you know, I, some I, people keep bugs as pets. I know. I had an entomologist across the alley from me who kept uh, like wasps as as to study, um, but. You know, also they were basically, I mean, he, he grew to like them and had the uh, concept of each sort of one of them. And there and was a kinship with his wasps. Yeah. Well, he hadn't, uh, he hadn't really, you know, it wasn't, he wasn't personifying the wasps, but he, you know, he knew each one um, for their short lives. And, um, you know, he did basically take care of them there, but he also sort of deprived them to see what would happen. Um, but the, um, you know, it's kind of a, where do you draw the line on the uh, on the punishment for what you might call a pet? I mean, I, I, had, 
Camille, who I'm sure is listening right now, is thinking, you don't draw the line anywhere. If it's a living, breathing thing, or if it breathes water, as fish do, or however that works, you treat it with the same dignity you would treat a human. Well, yeah, and you can see that this could really revitalize the, uh, you know, the, the, the pet rock as, as a pet, because... Um, yeah, you can't get charged with cruelty to a rock. Yet. Yeah, just wait till Elizabeth May holds the balance of power in the uh, federal government. Yeah, the Green Party's in there. You might uh, you might be facing Watch charge. Out. <laughs> okay, let's not mock Elizabeth May. She's she's. I quite, mock out she of is, love. She's she's quite she's wonderful. The only so. good one left. Uh, I wouldn't say that, but anyway. Um, I thought we should talk about driving law since this is the driving law podcast. It's not not goldfish law. No, that would be a very short-lived podcast. Well, we've done an episode, and now we're over. Um, no, the uh, I think the first thing that we should talk about is this story that's made the rounds this week about the woman in um, Victoria, elderly woman, COPD, a some type of oral cancer survivor. Asked to provide a roadside breath sample into an approved screening device and struggles to provide a sample, ultimately being unable to do so successfully. And the consequence of that was that she was issued a 90-day immediate roadside prohibition. Now, this woman did not dispute the prohibition. Uh, or sorry, did dispute the prohibition, did not dispute the prohibition with a lawyer. Yeah, she did uh, it on her own. Did it on her own. Did- um, got do, it, a letter. do it yourself case. Well, I mean, I'm not knocking her for it because from common sense, you would think, well, this should be easy. I'll get a letter from my doctor explaining my condition and everything will work out. I know. But if she had been to our website, she'd see that it's not common sense when it comes to an immediate roadside prohibition. And it's a it's a can be a real battle and you can be completely innocent and think that you've got all of the evidence you need to prove your innocence and um Fail to do fail so. to do so, at least with that tribunal. The rest of the world might accept that you're innocent, but the tribunal well, won't. It seems to be that the rest of the world here accepts her innocence. She said, I didn't have anything to drink. And I just want to say to all the haters out there who've been saying for years and years and years, if you don't want an IRP, don't drink and drive. This case is proof that that type of logic is deeply flawed. And this isn't the sole case. We had one no. like, just like this. Uh, We've had several. Yeah, I know, but there was another one that was in the news several years ago. Margaret McDonald. Margaret McDonald. Very similar circumstance. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she now follows me on Twitter. There's someone on Twitter as Margaret mm-hmm. McDonald who likes a lot of my tweets. I don't know if it's that Margaret McDonald, but... I don't know, but... Um, if you are, say hi. Well, we, we did put a blog post on a long time ago that she was our hero. Um, and I don't think she ever got any um, any real vindication out of the thing. She did not. But the um, I wrote a recent blog post about how she got the opposite of vindication in the end. Yeah. She, um, the, the most recent case now happened a little while ago. And a bunch of people in the media have known about it. Uh, and there's been all of these other more newsworthy stories and this thing, a lot of people sort of just, just our government collapsing. Well, a lot of people just didn't believe that that this is how it took place. Um, and I was contacted several times over the last month. Yeah, and about I, this. I know and reporters I, would phone me and go, "Is this common? Does this happen?" I'm yeah. Like, yeah, like literally every day. There's nothing yeah. surprising about yeah. this. And, and as a result of us saying that, it wasn't a news story because we kept saying, "Yeah, this is the way the but scheme it works." It should be newsworthy <laughs> that this is something that happens to innocent people every day with some regularity. Okay, maybe not every day. No, with some regularity, and especially people who have 
breathing problems. I mean, the, the refusal cases are the worst. This yeah. type of refusal case where the person is trying to blow and the police officer is going to spend 20 cents on one breath tube um, and uh, no more than eight minutes of their time before they make a decision that's going to cost you thousands and thousands of dollars in your life and no driver's license and humiliation. But I think it's also an example of the way, uh, and I, I said this in, in the interview with News 1130, that the deck is stacked against people. And it's not just at the adjudication level. The Alco sensor for DWF, the breathalyzer, roadside breathalyzer they used before this one, used uh, had a button that would allow the officer to manually take somebody's breath sample so that if they were demonstrating difficulty providing a sample, and the officer thought, well, you know, I don't know, maybe they're trying and, and it's not working. They could override the automatic sampling parameters of the device and capture the sample. Yes, and I'm going to comment more about that afterward. On the front of the device, there's the button, and it said right in front of it, on the button or right beside the button, manual. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. On the new device that they replaced that one with, the Alcosensor FST, there is also a manual sampling provision. Our Alcosensor FSTs have it. I've used it. I've sometimes used it accidentally to take a sample when I didn't mean to, um, because it's a relatively sensitive button and there's only two buttons. Um, but they disabled it for the RCMP. Yes. And now do you want to know why? Yes, I do want to know why. And I think I know what you're going to say, but tell our listeners. Well, I am, of course... As is so often the case, I am one of the causes of it. And that was, I would get refusal criminal cases. And one of the first things I would put to the police officers, now, okay, the person, you, you heard some airflow coming through it and the air, you could, you could feel the air coming through it. And of course, and they tried once and then they tried again and you were on your second mouthpiece. And, and then at that point, you know, if a person's struggling, it says here in the manual that you can use the manual button. In yeah. the instruction manual. And the police officers would either not know about it, um, or, uh, or the, yeah, or they would, uh, would not have an explanation for why they didn't use the manual button. Also the wrong answer. Um, and it wasn't, it, it, none of them had really experimented or practiced with using the manual button. So they didn't know about it. It was never really something that was covered in their training. If it was something that was covered in their training, it was something they didn't remember. And so the decision was made, and this has been expressed to me not as clearly as I'm going to say it, but it appears to have been made because they didn't want police officers to be asked that question and to be giving that answer, which is absurd. Yes. <laughs> I also will express some concern about using the manual button because part of the way that breath testing works is you want to capture the sample at the right point, which is why there's a minimum volume and breath flow rates uh, requirements. You want to meet uh, a certain amount of air being expelled to get at the deep lung air. You don't want to catch somebody at the top of their exhalation or, um, or at the wrong point on a curve because you're going to get either a falsely high reported blood alcohol level or a falsely low reported blood alcohol level. So from a, like, a purely scientific standpoint, a manual sampling process is not great but 
if you don't have any alcohol, you don't have any alcohol curve. And so it doesn't matter for people like this woman in Victoria or Margaret MacDonald who were sober. Well, the interesting thing about it from what you're just saying, okay, that, okay, the, 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 the back up. And if you don't know anything about breath testing, if you start reading any of the police training material, it'll always say you want to get deep lung air because deep lung air is the most reliable indicator of what the person's blood alcohol concentration is. And you can only get deep lung air when you get to the end of exhalation. It's not quite true. And it's not true. Um, and it's been debunked, but that is still repeated in every police manual. And no one, no police department has ever presented or provided, and I have not found, uh, published anywhere, and it, there might be something in Blut Alcohol or something like that, some publication that, you know, you're not going to try and read. Um, but I have never seen anybody show us the dramatic difference between deep lung air and an earlier part of the breath sample to show that it's really wrong. I can and, show you on the Intoxilizer 9000. Well, we can... Uh, I, I know that it does exist, but that's for evidentiary breath tests. Yes. Not roadside screening tests. Um, and uh, that yeah, is one of those... Yeah, you're not measuring a curve on That a is one of those experiments that, that um, should be done by somebody, and we can recommend it to someone to try it. But the point is... That on this device, the manufacturer makes it in such a way that you can manually take a sample of a person who is having difficulty maintaining a longer breath sample. Anyway, I will tell you, though, to his credit, Mike Farnworth has said that they are looking into bringing back that ability. Whether it's going to actually happen or whether it's just, you know, lip service to make the... New story New be story more palatable. Go, go away. But, you know, he's at least said he's going to do something, and now you and I get to take him to task on it if it doesn't happen. Well, remember Suzanne Anton after the decision about uh, the seven-day window to file for review from the B.C. Court of Appeal where they said, yeah, it's really unfair, but the government can do it. She said, oh, we're going to make the system more fair, and she went and did the opposite. Well, if you reverse the onus, it's more fair because then you have to prove that you're innocent. Can't you see the fairness in that, Paul, yeah. when so, you have no disclosure and no cross-examination? Yeah. I'm not uh, – there's no debate about the Suzanne Anton comments. But no. the, my point is that, that – Don't um, hold your breath. <laughs> don't – don't <yeah>, – don't <laughs> – uh, no. I mean, my point is that I don't expect the government to do anything. Uh, and I don't think that they will take any steps. And I think probably what they'll do is, uh, they'll get someone to look at this decision, send it back for a rehearing, and then, um, probably without a petition or anything, uh, and then cancel they have the no jurisdiction IRP. to do that. The Supreme it, Court of Canada be, has already said it'll be completely illegal and they'll do it because they don't want this news story because it's a news story that so exposes their, um, adjudicated process at the superintendent of motor vehicles. It's something we've complained about for the longest period of time. The judges have pointed out in many decisions that it seems to be a decision that is designed to get to a certain result rather than a proper assessment of the evidence. And that is what took place here. Let and me ask you this then. I doubt it's a decision made by the solicitor general to remove the manual sampling. It's probably a decision made by the RCMP or the um, 
the BCA Association of the Chiefs of Police Alcohol Test Committee, or it's a decision made by the, like, yeah, by some RCMP level decision-making power. Is it possible? We could could probably say, list the officers' names who are going to be making the decision, but there's no point. Anyway. Is it possible, though, that somebody like this woman who's affected by that decision could either, A, judicially review that decision, yes, the answer to that is yes, or B, sue the RCMP? The manufacturer put that ability on the device to recognize that not all people are capable of meeting the device's sample acceptance parameters. The legislation doesn't include an exception. They don't even disclose in the manual what the sampling acceptance parameters are, whereas it used to tell you that it was 2.1 liters of air at 2.5 liters per minute. You didn't have... Or per second. That was... If you actually blew that long, it's not that much air. It's not 2 point that's... Yeah. No, but... That was the, they the used to be. Yeah. It, they used to put that List in the manual, that, yeah. and now they don't. So you don't even know what opinion your medical expert has to give for the sampling ex- acceptance parameters. Maybe they could at least put that in the manual, if you're listening, anyone. Um, and They don't want to put that in the manual because they're, they're doing everything. to. They just assume that everybody's guilty. That's the legislation assumes everybody's guilty. But could you guilty. sue them? Could you sue them for taking away the ability to know... And for taking away the ability to override what is clearly a problem. Um, you know, I'm I'm not as willing to predict the outcome of lawsuits okay. as I, I once was. Uh, I, I suppose, suppose you could sue anyone. I mean, think about this. <laughs> Whether like, you could do it successfully yeah. is yeah, the real and that's question. the point. I mean, and the um, and remember the the Alcosensor FST, the roadside breath tester, the approved screening device. This, person uh was blowing into um you know in bc we don't use it in accordance with the manufacturer's recommendations in any event uh we don't calibrate them you know in in the united states uh and in most jurisdictions they're only um used lawfully to gain probable cause they're not used to punish people but in bc we punish people uh despite the fact that they're only being used for probable cause and that the evidence is not going to be uh the thing that leads to the conviction in the end uh in other jurisdictions and in canada when it's used for a criminal case um that is the same thing because you've got use immunity but despite the fact that they are only being used for probable cause they manufacturers recommendations are test them every two weeks to make sure they are within um, their parameters for calibration. Whereas in British Columbia uh, and probably all of Canada, we test them every month. So we don't even test them as often as the manufacturer recommends. And that's a result as a result of a very short study, apparently, that was conducted on the previous devices yes. by the RCMP lab. Yes, the, and it published in the Canadian Journal of Forensic Sciences. Um, and uh, which is run by the Canadian Society of Forensic Sciences, which runs the Alcohol Test Committee, which is a government, basically, group. Group of scientists. Group of scientists working for the government. Working for paychecks from the government. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and of course, it saves the government a ton of money because they don't have to test the devices. Yeah, and then they've often. got a peer-reviewed journal that says yeah. whatever they want it to say. Yeah, because their peers are them. 
Um, but you, you raise an interesting issue, and I'm going to abandon our other topic that we were going to talk about, because we can talk about it another day, and bring on you a mystery topic instead, which is, the other day I texted you a copy of the new technical information on the operation and calibration of ASDs in British Columbia document. And on that document, it is a document that accompanies every calibration record for approved screening devices in IRP cases. The bias document. The bias document, as seen in cases like Sutherland. And so many others. Yes. Just, yeah. Um, that document... Uh, you can thank Kyla Lee for that document. I mean... She's, re she's responsible, as many years ago now, that the earlier version of that Let's was not blame me here the earlier version of that was created by the superintendent of motor vehicles you, you can thank me for the existence of a document that's not the document i would have written if they'd asked me what i wanted no i know but the uh, the one they were using was written by the superintendent of motor vehicles and that was unlawful and kyla challenged it in bc supreme court and that was uh, the end of that so then the police anyway got yeah. to create their own which is arguably worse but what's the difference superintendent of motor vehicles police Six of one, half a dozen of the other. For a while, a dep the deputy superintendent was a former cop, so you there know, you go. can't get much more than that. Um, no, but the point I was making was on that document, there's a section about the status messages that display on the AlcoSensor FST when you're not successful at providing a sample. And of course, we talked a couple weeks ago about our four decisions in as many weeks and um, the Wierszewski case uh, that Brandon had argued and the... Um, the determination that because the status messages reported by the officer weren't consistent with the device, um, the patterns of readings in a case that we didn't talk about mine called McCartney that weren't consistent with the information on the technical information sheet. We've seen IRPs being revoked or being uh, adjudicators decisions being criticized in judicial review hearings for the police evidence not adhering to those technical parameters set out there and the adjudicators faulted for just overlooking or ignoring or excusing or inventing reasons for that. Obviously problematic from an administrative law standpoint. So how do you deal with this? Do you say, hey, police, get better? Or do you change the technical information sheet to say, oh, yeah, we're starting to reprogram all of the devices in BC, and they're going to be reprogrammed by July, so the information here is not accurate, but we're not telling you what it actually is going to say after it's been reprogrammed, or that the device that you used was reprogrammed yet or not. Yeah, so right now you're in this uh, limbo zone where it doesn't matter um, sort of what the readings are. You could probably just argue that you don't know that the device is properly programmed. Who knows um, what programming it has? Is it? We don't even know that it's still an approved device anymore because once you change the software, was that software approved by the uh, by the government? Was that the one that you know? Is it is it still an approved device? Um, with that new software or that different programming in it. Uh, what are the status messages supposed to be? Yeah, um, it, it lists status messages. The d document now lists the status messages and then says, some ASDs have been reprogrammed to give different status messages than these. And we expect th uh, that all will be ro reprogrammed by the end of July, 2019. So we're lawyers and we are supposed to, you know, in Canada, um, encourage confidence in policing <laughs> and um, I don't have confidence in that piece of paper we um, th th there are aspects of policing with which we have confidence but I have to tell you when it comes to breath testing 
Um, and it comes to the IRP scheme and it comes to the enforcement of IRPs. Um, I, I personally have no confidence, which is one of the reasons that we, you know, spend so much time dealing with them. And that's why I, it's a large part of our practice. I'm not as, as, as Cynical severe as, as you. Yeah. I mean, I have some confidence because I know that there are some people out there who are legitimately trying to do the right thing legitimately trying to identify the people that should be taken off the road for the protection of the public and legitimately trying to do it in a way that is consistent with the law, the charter and I get that too. But each time we've identified something, you know, okay, the police changed the whole calibration scheme, but is there any apology for all of the people before that? Is there any acceptance of all of the errors that they've made before that? No, no, never is. No, but I don't think that's the fault of an individual officer. You say you have no confidence in enforcement. See, I think that if you blame the people who are just out there having to enforce the law, you're neglecting the fact that all of these problems come from somebody higher up than that. No, but there's scrutiny of the police officer's evidence that we don't get. We do not get to cross-examine the police officers. Good we Lord, see, I would win almost every We therapy. see. We see... Police reports that we know are abhorrent. fundamentally wrong, abhorrent, that they should not exist, uh, that they completely are misleading, that they leave out all of the important information, that they omit the important information, that it's just a bare bones thing designed to, you know, set somebody up, um, or that it's completely unreliable. Yeah. But it doesn't matter. Maybe it, maybe it's not designed to set somebody up. Maybe it's just straight up incompetence or laziness. Well, I mean, it's not that they're the police are running around trying to set somebody up, but they, you know, lots of times it's just it is a, a fabricated evidence. The person, the the evidence might be that the person did everything wrong to commit the offense. It's just that that's not the evidence that we get in the police report. Nope. is not necessarily the evidence from that person's case. I mean, it's a good a good example of this is a case I had recently where my client's passenger captured a portion of the interaction on video and the officer was describing my client's blowing behavior. It was a refusal as not blowing any air at all into the device. Just like no blowing, like holding the breath. And I watched the video and on the video with the AlcoSensor FST, if you watch our uh, Can You Fail It video, you can hear this. You can hear the sound of the air um, exiting the exhaust port on the mouthpiece and there is an audible tone on the device as air is being blown through the device and detected by it. So if you hear the audible tone and you hear the shh, then you know that somebody is blowing air into the device. They may not be blowing enough or hard enough or long enough but they're blowing. And he said no air at all in his report, but the video showed the audible tone and you could hear the whoosh of air. You could also see how sober and coherent my client was. And that's a perfect example of it. I don't think that officer was trying to lie. I think he just legitimately wasn't doing a good job. Couldn't remember. 20 minutes later when he was writing his report. Yeah, and didn't knew he was never going to be cross-examined so on it. Yeah, well there's no no onus to be to be do a good job because there's no there's no threat of responsibility if you do a bad job. Yeah. And if you can just do the shortcut version and and lie when you've made the decision that they're guilty because you're a police officer, then uh, then that's it and there's no there's no repercussions for them. There's no responsibility. There's nothing.
It's a damn shame. Anyway, so watch out if you get an IRP for refusal for so many reasons, not just because a note from a doctor doesn't suffice, but also watch out because the information about the device that you're blowing into may not actually be the information that relates to the device, and you may have no way of knowing what actually is supposed to be said on that device. And uh, it is a really terrible, uh, procedurally unfair world out there. You have no idea if the device has which software in it. Uh, you don't know if that software Does is it cackle running. if you fail? <laughs> well, and the new software, the new, you know, basically is sort of untested. Every time we see some change, we find some other problem. Um, you know, it's uh, our discussions about breathalyzers. Of course, we have a lot of them. And it's a was a, you know, that was something very new that we did um, in Canada um, to start looking at breathalyzers and actual problems with it rather than just looking at charter arguments and weakness of evidence. But, you know, it's just a matter of time almost until you start seeing them messing up or you discover a problem with them. And changing software can hide a problem that they've discovered that they've never told anybody about um, or can uh, can reveal new problems. So I guess we'll see what happens with that. So that's uh, our time for this week's episode of Driving Law. Thank you again for tuning in to another episode. If you need to reach me or Paul, if you're the victim of an unjust IRP and you want to share your story and have us share it for you, reach out to us at vancouvercriminallaw.com or uh, give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next Friday for another exciting episode of Driving Law. Maybe I will not sneak a surprise topic on Paul mid-podcast without any planning.